0: Joel chapter three. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. Because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full. And the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of Decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of Decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion, and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Carrie. That's a a sombre reading.
0: Uh, Let me add my welcome,
1: if we've not met. My my name's uh, Matt Fuller. Uh, let me uh, let me lead us in prayer almighty god our heavenly father here is a, a somber word and yet a word that we need a word that we need to hear no matter where we stand before you whether we're sort of just complacent in our christianity whether we're uh, not yet persuaded of the truths of the christian faith whether we're just about hanging on father we need this certain word about what the future holds so please by your spirit would we hear it Rightly this morning we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Easter bombings, uh, Easter Day bombings in Sri Lanka. 258 killed in an attack on churches and hotels. And I don't know what you made of how it was reported, much of it, in the UK one one journalist Alison Pearson wrote a pretty scathing piece about how this attack had been reported uh, both by sort of politicians and the wider media uh, she's making the point really do you know what I, I things have changed subsequently but this is in the week afterwards I, I read the newspapers I go on the BBC website I listen to their reports I listen to politicians no one is saying this is an attack upon Christians that's odd she said, when it's churches that have been bombed. And she gives lots of different examples of euphemisms. This is just one. Uh, I could give you many, but uh, she observed oh, look, Hillary Clinton tweeted, I'm praying for everyone affected by today's horrific attack on Easter worshippers in Sri Lanka. And the journalist says, Easter worshippers? You could just call them Christians. That's what they are. You just compare that with the uh, when the mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, were targeted. There was no talk of Ramadan worshippers. No, Hillary Clinton quoted, My heart breaks for the global Muslim community. Gives that example and then talks about Theresa May and how she reported differently in the BBC and how it was reported differently in Jeremy Corbyn and how he commented differently. So it's not, I just won't give you all of them, it'll get a bit boring. But, um, oh, why can't you say it's Christians that have been attacked? It's a strange situation. If you go to the uh, recent report, you can see it online, on the uh, FCO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, on religious persecution, our government will tell you that 80% of those suffering religious persecution globally are Christians, 80%. The stats there will tell you that uh, uh, Christians are now targeted in 144 different countries around the globe. And in the last five years, the number of countries where Christians experience extreme, extreme persecution has gone from one, North Korea, to 11. So we're fine in the UK, but it is just worth observing around the globe, Christians suffer pretty severe persecution. And for them perhaps more so than us Joel 3 which is a somber passage is a massive encouragement if you're a Christian and you're suffering persecution because the Lord says chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem what will he do I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat or decision and there I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. I, I do see what happens to my people. All right at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 21. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I'm not. So this chapter 3, topping and tailing, it, is the Lord saying, I do see what happens to my people when they're persecuted. And I will make it right. That is the primary purpose of Joel chapter 3. There is very much one also for which perhaps cuts closer to you and me who are not suffering extremely. Secondly, it is a warning that one day this world does face the day, the final day of God's judgment, when, when every single person will stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account of their life and how they've treated other people and how they've treated him. And it's a dreadful day. It's a fearsome day, as well as a very good day. If you are just joining us, we spend a month then in this book of uh, Joel. And the day of the Lord is the dominant idea. Uh, throughout it there have been several days throughout the book and there's a little grid or table we may even get it um, which shows you uh, the first two are in around about 500 BC so there was a day of locusts God sent this plague of locusts upon Israel uh, and or or Judah and it it wiped out everything pretty much uh, all the crops etc and the Lord said it's a warning something worse will happen there is a there is a worse day coming upon you so there's a day of repentance Uh, And restoration in chapter 2 12 to uh, to pretty much the end of chapter 2 they're about 500 BC at the end of chapter 2 Joel promises a further day later on in history well that's the day of Pentecost in what you want to call it 33 AD Uh, Joel 2 28 29 when the Lord Jesus risen ascended pours out his spirit upon the church so we now live in what's what chapter 2 verse 32 the day of salvation So 2 verse 32, this is the day we live in now. We have been since Jesus ascended to heaven again. We will be until he returns again. We're in this day, the day where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then one day, and we certainly don't have the date, the Lord Jesus returns and wraps up this world and remakes it perfectly. And that is a day of judgment. Look, three things emphasized about this last day. We're going to look at it it like this. There's justice upon persecutors. There's judgment upon the nations, but there's solid refuge for believers. Okay? Justice upon persecutors. Judgment upon the nations. There's solid refuge for believers. Let's work through it. First, then there's justice upon persecutors. So chapter 3, verse 1, in those days at that and at that time, here is a later day than the one described in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, the day of Pentecost. And it's a day of justice. So again, let me read 2 and 3. I'll gather all nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my people. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and they sold girls for wine to drink so here is a day of justice not a popular word but you'd say I guess retribution even the the nations are gathered nations going here would literally mean non-jews but two things are emphasized about why they're going to be judged one is they scattered my people Verse two you might think, "Well, is that that bad? Well, biblically, when you scatter people, that's a terrible curse. When you gather people, that's a wonderful blessing. It's just how it works in the Bible. So Genesis 11, there's the Tower of Babel, and at the end of it, uh, they say, well, let's get rid of God, we don't need God, and they are scattered across the earth. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people come together and then they get scattered when they disobey. Uh, and ultimately, the whole plan of the whole of eternity is, is according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that the Lord, uh, that God is gathering all things together under the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you scatter people, you're working against God's plan. So they scattered the people. But I guess most acutely or easier to understand is the human trafficking of verse 3. Uh, I'll sell a boy in order to have a money to visit a prostitute. I'll sell a girl just so I can get a pint of beer. And we know that goes on today. In our city, there'll be plenty of people who have been trafficked here. It was then, it is now, wicked. And the Lord says, here's a day of justice. I see my people. I know what happens to them. I will bring justice. And let me just suggest an obvious point. You, you may not like all the language in Joel chapter 3, but we do want that from our leaders. In fact, there's, a, there's an outcry when we don't get that from our government. So the long-running saga of... Um, uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, you know, the British Iranian woman who uh, back in uh, uh, 2016 was jailed for five years. She went out, she's a journalist, was doing some reporting, uh, and was uh, convicted as a spy in 2016. And so her husband back in the UK with their small child has been campaigning, campaigning. Lots of the newspapers have got on board with this. It's this disgrace. Why, why is the government not doing anything about this woman? She's a British citizen and she's just been abandoned in Iran and just imprisoned. We're not doing anything about it. And I don't know if you followed this story. uh, It's quite an emotive one because of the child involved as as well. Well, finally, in March of this year, the foreign secretary declared, oh, we will do something. So uh, diplomatic protection uh, was awarded to her in uh, March of this year. And uh, to great fanfare, Jeremy Hunt, home secretary, declared, we do want the world to know that the UK will not stand by while its citizens are unjustly treated. Well, quite. Don't you want the world to know that? That if you happen to be overseas and you get arrested unfairly, you do want the world to know that the UK government will not just abandon you, don't you? And it may have taken three years for anything to happen, and she's now been awarded diplomatic protection, and she's still sat in the prison. Apparently, that applies an enormous amount of pressure. I don't pretend to understand how that works. But you do want to know that, don't you? That your government won't just abandon you. And the Lord is saying in in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 I don't abandon my people. We don't want a government that stands idly by when the citizens are unjustly treated. And we don't want a God who does that either. It gets a bit more specific in verses 4 to 8. Uh, verse 4 is slightly tricky to translate. The sense of it is, um, look, Tyre and Sidon and Philistine, you can't pay me off now. It's too late for that. You will pay for your own crimes. Verse 5, you took my silver and my gold. You carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You got all this money and you think you can pay me back now. No, because again, verse 6, you sold the people of Jude and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far From their homeland. So what's going to happen? Well, you're going to be treated the way you treated others. Still, people use that as a common, as a lazy golden rule, don't we? Even if you people who have no biblical knowledge say, "Well, you just treat people how you want to be treated." Well, the Lord says, "That's what's going to happen. You you trafficked my people into slavery. That will not happen to you." Verse 7, see, I'm going to rouse my people out of the places to which you sold them. I'll return on your heads what you've done. I'll sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah. They'll sell them to the Sabaeans, nations far away. Here is justice. And I don't think in the West broadly we like this sort of justice, retribution, unless we ourselves have been wronged. Then we do want it. It's easy to sort of dismiss the idea of this retributive justice unless something's gone wrong for you. P.D. James, the novelist in her novel Original Sin, has a character. And the character is, uh, there's two main characters in it, one's uh, Jewish, the other not. The the, the non-Jewish character says, oh, I don't like this idea of a God who judges. Quote, if I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, amusing, and cheerful. To which the Jewish man replies, I doubt you'd find him much of a comfort when you're being herded into a gas chamber. At that point you want someone more than who's just got a few good gags. You want someone who's powerful. You want someone who cares for you. You you want someone who will bring justice. So it's not you and me, particularly acutely at the moment, but here is great encouragement for Christians who do suffer persecution. For last year, the 3,700 Nigerians killed for their Christian faith. I said when I met a Nigerian bishop in June of last year at the Gafcon conference uh, from central, uh, the central region of Nigeria, said it's pretty rare that a week goes by when I hear of someone not being killed. Just every week, I know of a Christian in my area being killed. Christians don't take vengeance themselves. They never take up the sword. They never take up the gun. They know that they can forgive. They know that they can wait because one day the Lord will write all that has been done that is wrong. He'll bring justice. There'll be justice upon persecutors. Secondly, though, there'll be judgment upon the nations. I think this is an escalation here. It might be describing the same phenomenon of justice for persecutors, but there seems to be an escalation, uh, and certainly the New Testament takes it that way. Hear the summons of verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I'm strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. It's a summons to fight, but it's mocking. Make some swords, make some spears. Even the weaklings, the dweebs, you better fight. You're not excluded. Everyone. Needs to put on armor. Uh, Verse 11, nations from, from every side. So it seems at this point, not just those, I think, who have persecuted Israel. But the striking thing about this summons to war is that there's no battle. Too late for that. The only thing that happens is the Lord reveals his judgment upon every nation and every person. So verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I'll sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion. And thunder from Jerusalem, the earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Here's a very sobering picture of the final day. And his language that the New Testament picks up. So a couple of places, particularly in the book of Revelation, Revelation 6. I don't know if we've got that, Adam, but uh, Revelation 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained are those who'd suffered for their faith. They called out in a loud voice How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? Until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree. When shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Oh, this is cataclysmic, isn't it? This planet is just rolled up. Or a later description of the same event in Revelation 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. I mean, that's a terrible picture. That at the end of history, there's a judgment, and if you're on the wrong side of it, God says, I'll throw you into a wine press and crush you. It's a picture, it's a metaphor. But the picture is saying to you and me, don't go there. Don't face that wrath. Let me just ask three questions before we move forward. Three little questions on this. Uh, One would be, is this for real? Yes. Yes, there's a day of God's judgment coming upon each and every individual who's ever walked this planet. Jesus will do it. So Paul declares, Acts 17, uh, that God has appointed a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is the proof that he will return and he will judge. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you you should be believing that this is going to happen too. Jesus will return and all will have to give an account of how they've treated others, how they've treated the Lord, whether they've trusted in Jesus himself. Is this for real? Yeah. Secondly, it throws up, I guess it's one question for perhaps some, is God just cruel? Is it just really mean? Well, no, certainly the Bible presents this as justice and elsewhere the lord would describe this isaiah 28 as this is my strange work my alien task it's not what i enjoy doing ezekiel 18 verse 2 i I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign lord repent and live look i don't want to do this there's a reluctance to me but there must be justice we can't have a cosmos with it that doesn't take place so of course i know for many of us this side of heaven we may wonder we may wonder could god have done it differently does god have to treat people this way this side of heaven we may wonder we grasp that justice we we grasp protection for citizens that a government should provide we we sort of get it and yet still uh, emotionally we think And we need to know that when we arrive in glory, when we arrive particularly in the new creation, we'll stand there with perfect understanding and say, you were right, Lord. I'm sorry I doubted you. We see now with eyes that we couldn't possibly have, with knowledge that we never knew, that you do all things perfectly well. We see it now. Beforehand we trusted you, now we see. You're not cruel. This was right. Third, perhaps most obvious little question what about those who are not Christians, if you're here today and wouldn't call yourself a Christian? But for many of us who, who do follow Jesus, what about those we love who are not yet Christians? To which Joel 3, the, certainly the New Testament, would say, Today is the day of salvation. It's never too late until Jesus returns. But until then, we'll speak of him. I think, I'm not certain, I think that my father became a Christian aged 83 in the last month of his life. I think so. From the things that he said, having been hostile for a large chunk of it, I mean, explicitly hostile It's never too late. For those, if you're a Christian here today, for those you love, now is the time to speak. If you want to call yourself a Christian, now is the time to trust Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. There's justice upon persecutors. There's judgment upon the nation's lust. There's solid refuge for believers in uh, verses 16 to 21 16 the lord will rise from excuse me verse 16 the lord will roar from zion and thunder from jerusalem the earth and the heavens will tremble but 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 the lord will be a refuge for his people a stronghold for the people of israel the lord will be a refuge i don't know how much of all the sort of d-day remembrance you you watch this week I, i you know you I found myself sucked into watching loads, really. Uh, one account I read was of uh, a survivor of the Normandy landings, and they spoke about that, and uh, the question put it to him, uh, were you scared? He said, of course I was scared. Although, to be honest, uh, I was more scared five years earlier uh, five years earlier, age 14, you know, I was a 14-year-old living in um, North Kensington, London, uh, and it was part of the Blitz, and, uh, and the area was being bombed, and so we took refuge in our air raid shelter at the bottom of the garden, and as uh, we were there for a couple of hours, and we could feel everything. Obviously, the boom, suddenly was a boom, hit the side of our shelter. We, you know, he said, that, and seeing my parents scared that, actually, I, I found more terrifying than later events. And we emerged from the bomb shelter, and our house was gone. And actually, half the roof of the shelter had disappeared. He said, Well, you know, funny old things, those aluminium, no aluminium, um, iron uh, shelters. He said, But golly, we were grateful. Saved our lives. Well, yeah. And of course, that is the sort of refuge that Jesus provides not just an umbrella from the rain, but a refuge. Well, he's a refuge that is destroyed. Beaten, judged, shattered. So that you and I are not. So that when this world is rolled up and remade, we can be with him. Now, that is the sort of refuge that he is, one destroyed in our place. But it's quite hard to love a bomb shelter. Um, Of course, much more emotive uh, while seeing these extraordinary ex-servicemen on this 75th anniversary this week. I mean, they're not going to be here at the 100th anniversary. So this is the last chance to say thank you to them. And whatever you make of her, I thought Theresa May did pretty well this week in her speech. She said, it's incredibly moving to be here, looking out over the beaches where one of the greatest battles for freedom this world has ever known took place. And it's truly humbling to do so with the men who were there that day. It is almost impossible to grasp the raw courage it must have taken that day to leap from the landing craft and into the surf despite the fury of battle. But we say, thank you. Impossible to grasp, really, the courage it took. And I guess you and I must say even more so, it's impossible to grasp the courage it must have taken the Lord Jesus Christ to allow himself to be nailed to a cross, to spend those hours upon the cross as... The wrath of God is poured out upon him. It's impossible to grasp. I mean, Joel 3 helps us a little bit with the vividness of the language of how awful it would be to face the wrath of God, but it's still really impossible for us to completely grasp what it was for him. As you sang, feel the earth is shaking now, see the veil is split in two as he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners from his blood. This gives you a bit more detail, doesn't it, what that means? he's broken, he's crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. And so we say, thank you. Thank you that you endured that so we know eternal freedom is the cry of the Christian. And then in the end, verses 17 to 21, then they give a picture of where we're going so here is a picture of the remade creation the new heavens and the new earth verse 17 then you'll know that I the Lord your God dwell in Zion my holy hill Jerusalem will be holy never again will foreigners invade her in that day the mountains will drip new wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of acacias. That's a better valley to live in. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom a desert waste because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Here's a picture of luxury, a picture of plenty. Who's not there? Enemies, verse 17. No enemies there. No invaders, verse 19. No Egypt, no Edom. No enemies there. And how important that is to know if you have suffered all your lives. You've suffered persecution unto death. There's nothing to fear in this new creation. No one to ruin paradise so there's no enemy. Who is there? Well, the Lord is there. He's at the center of it. What's it like? Look, just enjoy the sort of very physical description that you get here. Okay, it's written in language that they would have understood in 500 BC. So, wine is dripping from mountains, and the, the hills are flowing with milk, and the run, the the hills, there's water flowing everywhere. Uh, do you see this language of dripping and flowing and running? No longer there's a shortage of anything. A complete undoing of chapter one. There's an absolute abundance. So here's language they would have got: wine, milk, water, for you and for me. I don't know what it'll be if Joel were writing this for you now. What would it be it would be the sun will always shine and the skies will always be blue and we'll eat the finest of food and never get bored we'll drink the finest of wines but never get drunk we'll have the greatest of friends but never lose them because this is verse 20 for all generations this is forever at the heart of it is the Lord all these blessings flow out of the Lord's house for he is the source of all that is good. And you get the same picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, that the river runs through the new creation, bringing God's goodness and, and blessing to all. So what do we do with Joel 3? Well, of course, in one says the simple message to Christians is keep going. I mean, it's a pretty sharp and acute message if you're in the central provinces of Nigeria, if you're the Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in extreme persecution in 11 countries of the world. This would say, keep going. Justice will come. And when you arrive in the new physical creation, it'll be wonderful. For many of us, I guess it's, Or take refuge in Jesus, if you've never done that. Please do so while there's time. It's a kindness that he's not shy in telling us what's going to happen. He says, there is a day of judgment. It'll be absolutely horrific. But you can trust that I've taken it for you. That I've secured your freedom. For many of us, who are Christians... Well, we we need to speak of this while there's time. And we need to once again say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're my refuge. Thank you that you've endured Joel 3 for me so that I never will. So keep going. Speak of this day. Give thanks. Let me lead us in prayer together. mighty god our heavenly father we thank and praise you that this world is not out of control this world is not one where the wicked will always and forever be able to get away with their injustice thank you that you are the perfect government over the cosmos you are the leader the king who sees how people are treated acutely you see how your people are treated And um, one day there will be justice upon those who have persecuted and there will be great rewards and firm, solid, physical promises fulfilled in the new creation. Father, thank you that that is all possible through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've risen him from the dead, and so there will be, and appointed him as judge. He will return and judge. And Father, for many of us here this morning, we also just want to look at him and say, Lord Jesus, once again, we thank you that you are our refuge, that you stood before the wrath of God and shielded sinners with your blood, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.